Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to talk to Emmanuel. Emmanuel Daniel is based in Singapore and is the founder of the Asian Banker. And he's also founder and involved in many other activities. All of those are centered around banking. So if you want to find out more from an independent source about what's going on in banking, what's coming ahead when it comes to technology and other matters that we are always interested here on Voice of Fintech, Daniel is the source that you should really listen to. So I'm curious to find out more. Plenty of diverse topics, so I'm not going to mention them right now. So welcome, Daniel. How are you today? Rudy, thanks for having me on your program and uh, yeah, and that introduction. So Asian Banker is something that I set up uh, 28 years ago. It's a shorthand of describing who I am. But as you said, also that we do many other things. I'm entrepreneur, so always starting a new business. And we have another program called Wealth and Society. Uh, but with the Asian Banker brand name, I've been able to become friends with the banking community in a diverse set of nations around the world, all of Asia with a front seat view of the developments taking place in China. And although I'm from Singapore, I'm hardly in Singapore. I spend a lot of time in Beijing and in New York and then travel around the world. And we have offices in Dubai and we run programs in Africa and so on. So it's just a global mental map of the banking industry. And I've used the, the feel that I have for the industry from a very in-depth relationship with many decision makers in terms of where the industry is going. All right, but how did you get to do what you do today? You said you started Asian Banker 28 years ago, but not everybody did it. You did it and no one else. So how did that come about? (laughs) That's funny because I always wanted to be a lawyer. When I graduated, I decided not to be. It was a very interesting experience that I wanted so much to be. And then on the day I qualified, I just that's exactly what I didn't want to be. So 10 years of wandering in the wilderness. <coughs> and then I just felt that I was in consulting a lot. I was with the predecessor of PricewaterhouseCoopers. I was in Coopers and Library. And then, and then I wanted to start something of my own. And if you're in Asia, you'd want to, and you want to start a business publication. The government always gets you into trouble in those days. You, you get put in jail and stuff like that. And the next large industry that covers any country from cradle to grave, I call it the cathedral industry, was banking. And so I was naturally attracted to something big. And, uh, and because of banking, I, was, I, had the, I had the excuse for visiting many countries, becoming the friend of many of the chairman and senior people in the larger banks in every country and then piecing my experience together. It was a wandering spirit and entrepreneurial side, I'm not sure where it comes from, but but that's what I've become. And an entrepreneur is a beast in that way. But in the process, because you need to make a living, you need to figure out what is it that banks 
want to buy. And so we, we started with a simple publication model because that's where they let you into the office, tell you their story, I hope you cover them. And then with all the data that we collect, we collected, we sell it back to them in the form of consulting and so on. And, and in the early days, I had the industry all, almost all to myself. Today, there are many competitors and variations on banking intelligence. But, uh, but in the early days, I, I was the defining player. And but when I gave my, myself the name The Asian Banker, the funny thing is, by day four of the business, when my staff called up the banks, they said, we're calling from The Asian Banker. And they say, oh, yes, we've heard of it before. But actually, we're just four, four days old. It's just one of those names that carries as a reputable name. And then we lift the reputation. So we've become the brand, a trusted brand in that way. So I guess it's been a journey that, in, in that sense. All right. So you are an authority on banking and uh, banks, unfortunately, have been in the headlines last few months this year again, and not for good reasons. Again, are we experiencing banking crisis globally or different regions? What do you think? I think we what we're experiencing is not so much a crisis but a transition, and there there will be bank failures as it as there has been. But the underlining substance of what's happening is that the banking industry is going through a profound transition in that starts from the digital realm, but is creating a new reality that they have to come to terms with. So when we think about the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, of Signature Bank, of First, First Republic, correctly, the industry has identified that the digital account is part of the problem in that customers can make their decisions in an instant. And when you're able to withdraw deposits instantly, it has a profound effect on a financial institution. But we've been coming to this point for a while now. And from this point, we are on a journey to a new banking reality. Uh, and that's what I cover in my book. In fact, I was already talking about it in my book when I had it published in September last year. And then Silicon Valley Bank took place. And what I said in my book was this, that that there's a big difference between the industrialization of finance and the digitization of finance. The industrialization of finance is digitizing everything in order to be able to do the same things bigger, faster, easier, and cheaper. The digitization of finance is creating a whole new reality where the product itself has to change. And then I had actually spent almost two years asking myself if if and saying to myself that if the product doesn't change, nothing changes. And that's something that bankers and fintech players have to internalize, which is that the transformation of the banking industry they're talking about has to result in a fundamental change of the product itself. Products cannot be the traditional mortgages and deposits that banks have become accustomed to. So when I was asking myself this question, I was thinking about other industries. And I say this in my book, the, the film industry, for example, Kodak practically invented the digital camera and then didn't make the transition to digital fast enough. All of that happened in about 1995. By 2001, Sony came up with the Cybershot. By 2007, the iPhone was invented. And 2010, Kodak went into receivership. And why? Because they loved their physical, their physical 35 films and they couldn't make that transition fast enough. And the cost of running that business eventually grew on them. Um, and then when I asked if something similar happened, and in fact, I actually coined this phrase, the banking's Kodak moment. So I asked myself, what is 
banking's Kodak moment going to be? And the answer that I came to was that banking's Kodak moment will be in its deposit business. And when you look at the deposit business, in the old days, a deposit account was where you and I and everybody would go into to save our money and hope to become wealthy or preserve our wealth through compounded interest. And today, banks don't give any form of interest to for you to create wealth out of your bank deposit. In fact, it's the most useless of, of ways to generate wealth. Now, and what has been happening is that because of digitization, a whole generation of digital wallets have come into existence. And they range everything from banks that have digital wallets to super apps. And then you have cryptocurrencies on the other extreme, which are actually tokens that can be exchanged between individuals without an intermediary. Right? So that reality already exists today. It is about 10% of the total deposit base of all banks in the world. The numbers are in the trillions and then crypto is in the billions. And But it is changing the name of the game. And the name of the game is that it is shifting from deposits as a, as a wealth generator to deposits as a utility to give access to lifestyle choices, to the metaverse and to new realities. And that transition is going to continue continue into the future. And banks are going to look at their traditional deposit business and say, there was a time when garnering the cheapest deposit base was sacrosanct. It was the definition of a good bank. With the cheapest form of deposits in any market, you are able to grow your loans book, you're, you're able to keep your costs down, you have, you're able to be close to your customer and all that. And the name of that exact game is changing. And it's not just about people don't go to branches anymore. And it's not just that you need to improve your digital banking platform. It's that whatever you create as a bank has to enable the user access to a whole new sets of reality, set of reality that they, they become accustomed to. And part of that is physical, part of that is metaphysical. So that's the world we are transitioning into. And so banks have to answer this question for themselves, which is, how do I make that transition? All right, absolutely. But as you said, it's still just 10% of the total deposits, right? So these banks that got into trouble this year didn't go down because of this, right? This is something that is going on a long-term basis. But this year and last year, we are, we've been experiencing inflation. So central banks have been rising rates. And strangely for me, the banks have been complaining about low interest environment for the past 15 years all around the world, right? Because as we know, the higher the interest rates, the higher the net interest margin for the banks. So how come they are now struggling with that transition? Finally, they're getting higher interest rates they always wanted. And now they're taking hits to their assets. And then you have digital runs on the banks and then they are disappearing. The way in which Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and First Republic looked after their deposit business was textbook, meaning that's how banks run them, meaning that you get the lowest form of deposits possible, you lend as much as possible, and if, if you have excess deposits, you put that into investment accounts, that, and the best of investment accounts are treasury bonds. So they were not doing anything that was wrong. But the rules had changed on them because deposits today 
uh, instant and more than instant. In other words, in one Sunday afternoon, $60 billion or was it $80 billion can be transacted out of your bank on the strength of, uh, of a tweet from, from one of the VCs and, and from Thiel, the, the, one of the, one of the VCs in the marketplace, right? And, and, and that's something that the banking industry was just not prepared for, but that's just the starting point of how digitization is going to be ripping the banking industry apart in the near future. All right, understood. So let's follow up on this. So why do you think it's easier to have a run on the bank in a digital age? And what can regulators or bank managements do about it? It's, I meant to say Peter Thiel. The name was a little short in coming up very quickly. But the thing is that when you embrace digital, you have to embrace instant. But the banking industry is just not created for that. And the interesting thing is that when you look at what's going on in decentralized finance is instant every moment. And it doesn't have a regulator and it doesn't have an intermediary, a solid intermediary. There are players, but that in theory, you and I can transact with each other directly. So the thing is that you cannot embrace digital and think that you'll be able to control any of the consequences that come at times when you're not, when you least expect it to happen. So I think that the banking industry is coming to an inflection point, and there's going to be several on this journey, where it's going to start saying that if the risks that we carry are instant, we need instant technology. And that instant technology already exists in decentralized finance. With the use of an algorithm, you're able to manage your portfolio, put in place all the rules for your treasury function, for your asset liability mix, and so on, and then be able to respond on, on the fly. And that's a whole new way of thinking about banking, which bankers haven't even started doing because the technology that they sit on is mainframe. It's batch processing. They're not able to provide their own customers with that level of ubiquity and instantness that, that the digitization is, is demanding from them. And that's the transition that they need to make. I see. Understood. I would call it a technological debt, right? Where you're not fast enough or agile enough to react to what's going on in the markets. And the, and the name of the game is perception. In other words, today, an, an institution or an organization can be decimated just by the strength of a tweet. And that's because of what the market perceives you to be, perceives you to be, regardless of what your balance sheet looks like. If you're a manufacturer, you may have good inventory, you may, good, may have good collectibles, and all that, all of that, it may be well capitalized, but your capital can be eroded in 10 seconds just because there is a, a Reddit revolution that is eating into your, in, into your business. And banking has to start preparing for that. And the kind of risks that we're going to see going forward are not balance sheet risk or asset liability risks. And that's what the Basel Committee has been creating and regulators by definition create regulatory regimes based on the previous crisis. They, there's very little scenario planning for how the crises will look like going forward. And that's, what, that's the role I'm trying to play, which is that let's put it all together and see where it's taking us and put the elements down that can, can affect a banking business. And perception is one of them. All right, understood. Your books cover transition from traditional platforms to personalization. 
Can you tell us more about that? My first thesis is that the personalization of finance is here. We are now at an inflection point where the individual is able to transact with another individual directly without the need of an intermediary. The traditional banking industry will be heading in that direction. The technology already exists, but all of the current existing intermediaries will need to redefine their roles. And you can start by looking at the payments industry, for example. In the U.S., payments is a multi-layered legacy and legacy technology and legacy players structure or infrastructure that finds it very difficult to be dismantled. And there are any number of players who, who generate income from any payment flow. And in the credit card system, when you swipe your card, the issuing bank, the, the accepting bank, the card association, and then the card associations use, or rather the card companies use third-party processing companies, ISOs, and so on. There's so many players involved in that. But what has payments become? At the end of the day, today, because of technology, payments is the same as a message. In the same way that you and I can send messages and talk to each other for free like this, payments is a message, it's a form of message, and we should be able to transact payments with each other for free. The reason we don't do that is because there are intermediaries in place, there are regulations in place, there are security issues in place, and so on. Now, in Africa, today, the number of fintech startups that have payment, payment infrastructure on the back of existing telecommunications network, it's not banking-driven, they're just blossoming everywhere in Africa. And I've come across one at least which said that in the, within three years of being formed, they are now generating $50 million in clear profit, which means that if the legacy payment infrastructure from the US reached them, all of that profit would have been sucked out and benefited everyone except the people on the ground in Africa, right? But now the payments business can generate income that stays within the economy. So th this is the kind of transitions that we are seeing today that banks have to start asking themselves that how do we dismantle what we have and embrace the, the new structures that are enabling us to, to function. But the way in which the traditional banking industry is responding is trying to do to sell the existing products better, faster, cheaper using those new technologies that are coming on stream. And that's not going to work. And I have a lot to say on that front. So let's follow up on personalization even more. How can you personalize, first and foremost, your, your services profitably and at scale? So a lot of talk is about by neobanks about personalization, uber personal. Everything is going to be just for you. But how can you do it and still make money? So what you just said is exactly the sentiments that I'm fighting against. When I say personalization of finance, every banker in the world imagines that they know what I'm talking about. And what they think of personalization is that the customer feels that the product was created for him. And it's almost like you package a mortgage into a gift package with, with a cake box and give it to the customer and the customer feels like it was meant for exactly. him. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Netflix. Netflix, but with about money. Yeah. Netflix is consumption. It's a little bit different. But the thing is this, that personalization is when the customer doesn't need you at all. Okay, so that you're not in the picture anymore and the customer is in full control of his transactions. Now, we might take about 50 years to reach there, but we are well on that journey already. 
And the service that the customer needs from the bank is changing. Like, for example, if you and I can exchange Bitcoin between us, the services that we need from a platform is not, it's not to make the transition, but to maybe to validate that you are you who you say you are and I say I am who I say I am, uh, make that transition in tra- uh, transaction in a secure environment. And that's all the platform gets to do. The platform doesn't hold the asset, doesn't, does, doesn't even need to carry the asset because the, the transaction is done digitally between you and me. So the intermediation business needs to be restated. I say in my book, there are four elements that need to be in place for the personalization of finance. Firstly, there must be identity, meaning that you are who you say you are. I am who I say I am. But the problem with identity in the digital world is we can also have multiple identities. You can have an identity when you relate to me and another identity when you relate to somebody else. So how does how does the, the, how do the technologies enable you to do that? Secondly, the ability to verify the transaction. And thirdly, the, the ability to carry value, meaning that I can give you a monetary value uh, and transact that to you. And fourthly, information that together with that token of value, I have exist, I have supporting information that can make the transition more com- com- complicated or sorry complex or completed or complete so the thing is that if these four elements are in place we do not need intermediaries and i start my book by telling the story of ice ice used to be something that you would you would saw out of the lakes the frozen lakes put it on horse drawn carriages take it to the city and then that's where it finds its use what is ice today it's you it's something that you produce well within your control in a refrigerator and what is refrigerator it's it's a chemical technology called chlorofluorocarbon, which absorbs heat. So if you think in the same way about transactions, we are looking for the chlorofluorocarbon of finance. And the elements of that are being being perfected step by step in different formats for each of these four elements, identity, value, verification, and information. All right, understood. Digital identity, of course, is one of the challenges when you want to decentralize finance. So a lot of people call it decentralized finance instead or disintermediation of traditional incumbents. That's all good. But even though there's been a lot of discussion about using cryptocurrencies as payments or payment means, there have been challenges, right? In many countries, you can accept it. You can pay on equivalents of Amazon, things like this. But the issues are the regulations or the lack of them. And then, of course, you've got the lack of speed and volatility, whether you like or don't like the traditional payment networks. And still, it's not free either. There's been some discussion about CBDCs, but I don't know whether there's been enough progress. What do you think about that? CBDCs, one form of the digital token technology that already exists. You have cryptocurrencies, you've got CBDCs, you've got stablecoins. And CBDCs, the result of, I call them regulators' love fest with each other. They just fall over themselves and it doesn't matter which jurisdiction you come from. Regulators from China and from the US and Canada all love each other and they love talking CBDCs. But I've now visited with a number of the, of the countries where CBDCs are already live and none of them are working. 
And the pushback from the banking industry is profound. And banking industry operates on the principle of inefficiencies, of keeping the process friction in order that they can generate income. And they resist the idea that the central bank should issue a token that would bypass the banking industry that can go straight to to the end user. So there are many things about the CBDC idea that to me, because I've been talking to many, some of them are actually governors of central banks and uh, and uh, it has its challenges. On top of which, you can have Janet Yellen issue a paper in the US saying that we, the US should think of CBDCs, but the very constitution of the US doesn't allow a token where the state can can have greater scrutiny over people to be in place. So then you ask, how is it that 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 a policymaker could could continue with this thinking in in the face of public opinion in places like the U.S. and Canada? What is most more likely to happen is that that the central banks will capitulate and allow every bank to issue their own stable coin. And and I see that the deposit business will eventually evolve to stable coins as being the utility token that banks will compete with each other on. All right. So maybe we go back to how it started, right? Every bank had their own banknotes. You're not wrong. In fact, one of the things I love doing is I love going to the museums and looking at the Babylonian, the Cyrillic, uh, the tokens that they generate, the physical ones. Actually, today's tokens are exactly that in the digital form. And, and the amount of information that we can carry today is amazing. And the big thing about crypto is this. It's not that its price goes up to 60000 In fact, I actually think that crypto becomes more functional when its value is nothing in itself. So I think that we'll get to that point at some point. But the real value in crypto is the amount of energy that's going into each one of them to create functions, to create utilities, programmers in the open source world, creating applications, creating inter- interoperability and liquidity between different cryptos. That cannot be matched by any CBDC. So I think that we need to line up what is it that we're looking at when we put cryptos, CBDCs and stable coins alongside each other. I see. All right. Great stuff. So before I let you go, I just have two easy questions. First of all, you can mention other people's books or your books. It doesn't matter. Well, what is your favorite business book or nonfiction book that you would recommend? And of course, follow Emmanuel's books, but in general. Yeah, the thing is that when I was going to print with my book, I had given it to several people to read. And and one person came up to me and said, oh, you've read this book, The Sovereign Individual, haven't you? And I said, no, I've not even heard of this book. And I was really enamored that there were people thinking along the lines as I was at that time, the personalization of finance. And actually, the personalization of finance will eventually lead to the personalization of society. So I'd recommend that as a book. And then, of course, there are other books that, that, are, that are really nice to read for, for self-help and all that. But for books that forces us to think about what the future will look like, I'd suggest a sovereign individual, but there are other futurists as well. The thing about the whole the whole exercise or the practice of trying to draw the dotted lines to the into the future is to also take stock of the ideas we've had that weren't correct 
or that needed to be modified as we moved along. So in my case, for example, I have a I have a list on my table of the issue, of the unresolved issues that that we need to think about when we project the future of finance. And one of them is the whole idea of centralization and intermediaries. Even the decentralized finance world has its own problems with intermediaries, and uh, and how that gets disassembled remains to be seen. So it's just a lot of moving parts, and then trying to build a coherent picture of the future. Absolutely. So. My last question, therefore, is what's the best way for people to reach out or to follow you, your content, where to find out about your books, etc.? Actually, Rudy, you gave me a few thoughts through your questions that I'm going to write down notes in my blog. So my blog is emmanueldaniel.com. And from there, you get to travel everywhere. You'll see where the book is you'll, and some of the comments that I write on an ongoing basis. And then also the businesses that I run that, that navigates you. So just my name, emmanueldaniel.com. Fabulous. So everyone check out emmanueldaniel.com. And I'm going to put the link in the show notes in any case. So thank you so much, Emmanuel, and good luck. Thanks, Rudy. You too. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.